Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source of news, interviews and comment on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence, brought to you by TCT Magazine. I'm your host, Sam Davis, and today I'm bringing you the latest episode of our executive interview series. Last year, Hubs announced the appointment of Alex Cappy as its Vice President and CEO, months after the company was acquired by Protolabs in a $280 million deal. Hubs is an online manufacturing platform that was founded in 2013 and boasts a range of services that span 3D printing, CNC machining, injection moulding and sheet metal fabrication services. Through its global manufacturing network of suppliers, it has long been an advocate for decentralised manufacturing and as it has matured as a company, has placed a significant focus on quality assurance across that base of partners. In this episode, Cappy tells us about the growth of Hubs' manufacturing network, what's changed since the acquisition by Protolabs, and where the opportunities lie for 3D printing when it comes to supply chain. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more additive insight, head over to tctmagazine.com where you can subscribe to the print edition of TCT Magazine and our weekly additive insight newsletter for free. Cappy, welcome to the Additive Insight podcast. How are you doing today? Doing great, thank you, and uh, very glad to be here. Good stuff. So we're recording this at the start of November, which I think makes it just over a year since you were announced as the VP and, and CEO of Hub. So how would you evaluate your first, I guess, 12 months plus leading the business? Yeah, well, it's been, I think, a really interesting time to be leading this business. Uh, I joined Hubs about two years before that uh, as the COO and had had a fantastic time. Uh, At the same time, like I said, really interesting times because a lot of my time has been during COVID. Mm. So we are a global network of uh, manufacturing partners. We're a platform with access to supply all over the world. And the world went through so much disruption in that time. Mm. And then for us, we were of course acquired by Protolabs. Uh, shortly before I became uh, CEO and VP. So, you know, it's presented unique opportunities and unique challenges. Uh, For example, COVID made us far more flexible and resilient than we had been before. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the key features of our business is that global supply and the ability to have always on manufacturing capability. Uh, But you know, we had to be more flexible, more dynamic than we had in the past. Mm -hmm. Uh, We learned a lot. Now, working with Protolabs, uh, we're able to offer customers more than we ever have before. So we have our global supply uh, that is outsourced. They have some of the most advanced in-house factories in the world. So now we are working on how we can put those two capabilities together uh, to be a real one-stop shop for customers. So to me, you know, I'm excited to have seen the change the organization is going through, the way the team is rallying and responding uh, to the change in opportunities. And I think that we're really just at the start of this journey. So mm-hmm. it's a lot more to come. You mentioned the the kind of the nature of, of the hubs business, a, a global um, supply that's outsourced and, and I guess a, a network of manufacturers. Can you talk to me about how the business model of hubs works and, and I guess what that global manufacturing network of partners looks like in terms of, I guess, numbers and geographies and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, I may have jumped the gun without explaining this one properly. So I'll start with the customer point of view. So mm-hmm. as a customer, you come to hubs, to hubs.com with 
a need for a part. Uh, you need to have a CAD file, you know, whether it's SGL or STEP. Uh, you upload that to our website. You choose your parameters, you know, whether you want a certain material, surface finish, quantity, uh, lead time, and we are able to instantly offer you pricing on that part. Uh, as a customer, I just say, yep, I'll take that lead time, that price, these requirements, go. And however long it is, whether it's a couple of days or a couple of weeks, that part is going to show up to me in a Hubs branded box, you know, beautiful quality, and I'm done until I've got my next need. Now, on the back end, what's happening is we take that file that the customer's uploaded. Uh, we have some machine learning driven pricing that enables us to do that instant quote because we're looking at global supply chain capacity. So the customer said, I need this material, I need this finish. So we're already filtering down to, okay, I know which suppliers can do this. And we instant quote, and then on the back end, we go out to our network and we source that part in the best factory for that specific need at the right price. Um, so this matching and that automation is what allows us to do it really scalably. Now, the business model, the revenue model is, of course, the difference between, you know, what we're selling at and what we're buying at. Mm -hmm. uh, we take a margin in between, uh, which covers our operating costs. And, of course, to the customer, we are providing the additional value of making it that much easier. You know, you don't have to shop around and look for suppliers. You don't have to assess factories and go, oh, do mm -hmm. they have what I need? Is it going to be good? I don't know anyone who's used them. Uh, you just know it's our name. We're the contracting entity and you're going to get a great part, you know, what you need when you need it. Mm. And are you are you working with, I gather it's both like one-off customers or, or repeat customers? Is it, is it people looking for one-offs or are there, are there, you know, batches of, of and volumes of parts being ordered at, at once. And I guess, how do you manage the supply and demand of all of that? Because that probably fluctuates and starts growing from where you were when, when you first started, but surely that's an up and down kind of thing and you have to manage that. We see both use cases. So we talk about it as production and prototyping. Uh, a lot of customers will come to us with a prototype. So that might be a quantity of one, uh, they iterate on that design, they order another quantity of one, or it could just be a handful. Mm -hmm. uh, we even have customers, you know, they're making five prototypes of fully assembled units to show to their investors. We've got a lot of, you know, startups and early stage companies that use us. But then as their product matures, they stick with us through the production runs. Uh, and so we get orders of, you know, thousands of uh, units per line item. You know, we get a lot of high mix, low volume. So that could be a customer saying, I'm building 10 of these machines. They've got 50 different parts. Here are the 50 parts. I want, you know, Q equals 10 on all of them. Hmm. Uh, and because we have the diversity of supply, they can do it with us in one place, as opposed to, oh, I got to go to factory A for this one, factory B for this one. Uh, so we do see both and we love the customers that are really growing up with us. Uh, to manage the supply and demand, which, you know, we are fundamentally a marketplace where the suppliers, we call them manufacturing partners. Uh, I'm sure I'll slip in the course of this conversation and say MPs, just know that that's what I mean. Uh, you know, we need to make sure that we have the right capacity at all times, because, you know, for us, it's not like, ooh, you know, the two day is not available right now. The two day always has to be available somewhere. Uh, and within manufacturing, there are so many slices 
it's not just, you know, so we do a lot of additive. We do various flavors of 3D printing. We also do a lot of CNC. We do sheet metal, injection molding. But it's not enough to say like, oh, I've got, you know, 10 3D printing factories. Mm. One is not the same as the next. It's how many MJF suppliers in which regions, with which machines, with which materials. Uh, and so you're constantly trying to balance those things and make sure that as customer demand in one place swells, you've got the suppliers that you need to back that up. But conversely, we want to make sure that our suppliers have meaty jobs from us. Mm. You know, they're not going to take jobs from us. They're not going to look at our portal if they go in and there's nothing there. It's just crickets. <laughs> so you're constantly moving those two things together. And I think we've done a pretty good job of it over the years. Uh, it's, you know, there's a team that covers that though, and they do yeah. a good job. Yeah. In terms of when, when a customer comes and they upload their, their CAD file, um, do you um, expect and anticipate that they, they're, they're educated in, in the 3D printing processes or is there, because we, we talk a lot about DFARM and, and design products manufacturing. So how much work goes on in, in, in basically tweaking the design or whatever? Do you collaborate with your, with your customers in that way? That's an amazing question. Uh, most of the time, we don't need to work with our customers on this. So we have uh, some of our software is actually DFM. Okay. So customer uploads a part and, you know, it, well, we have mesh fails and everything, but we'll have a viewer that will yeah. highlight these are the problems with your part for manufacturability. And we do see customers actually use our software to improve their own designs. Mm -hmm. So you can see the behavior where they upload and it's like, up oh, thin wall, upload again, ah, oh, that one's resolved. Uh, with other processes like CNC, where it's subtractive, not additive, it'll, you know, this part's hard to reach. And so they go and they revise it. So the automation allows us to skip most of that. Uh, at the same time, what we do see, we do work with some customers who are trying to optimize and we have engineers in-house that can give them feedback to make sure that their design is suitable. Uh, but what we see with additive in particular is that we get customers who had a part that should have been injection molding. They The lead time was too long. They needed something faster. They needed a bridge round. And so they come and they're like, I'll just pop it in for 3D printing. And it's not mm. made for that. So that's where we do think that there's a lot of room for customer education uh, on how to optimize for 3D printing. And I think they'll find that they stop limiting themselves in ways that they might just naturally do so today. Hubs as a company has been around for, for 10 years or nearly 10 years. And you, as you mentioned earlier, been been the company since 2019. And obviously we've already touched on the, the pandemic and, and I guess the the you know, you, you mentioned it had to make you, you had to become more flexible, more resilient. So can you, I guess, tell me about what you see in the company today, as opposed to 2019 when you started, what's the, I guess, the evolution of, of the company over that period, which is obviously a, a challenge, as you said, for, for everyone. Well, if you'll allow me, I'll actually start earlier than 2019, because I think this company has evolved so much uh, that it's important to remember where we started. So hubs started as 3D hubs, and it was a peer-to-peer -peer network for 3D printing exclusively. So that meant that, you know, you or I with our desktop FTM machines, we might be both customers and 
hubs is what they were called, the manufacturing partners. Uh, and so that tended to attract on the customer side, a lot of hobbyists, actually on the supply side, a lot of hobbyists as well. Uh, you know, I have a 3D printer at home and so I totally could have been uh, a supplier mm. back then. But then over time, so that grew and grew and grew and had amazing numbers of users. But just from a revenue perspective, it was kind of hitting a point of diminishing returns, let's say. So I think it was around either 2017 or 2018 that hubs really started to shift gear from being peer-to-peer or C-to-C to B-to-B. Mm. So uh, CNC was added to the platform uh, in the additive side, you know, went into the newer technologies like SLS at that point. Uh, and it just started to grow up a little bit. So moving away from the hobbyists to starting to serve some very serious business customer needs. Uh, so in the time that I've been at Hub, starting from 2019, I think the biggest shift I've seen is just the professionalization and the shift to be like a true B2B company. Because mm-hmm. there, of course, as you're going through that changeover, there's a bit of uh, an in-between moment where you're serving both types of customers and maybe not doing it particularly well because they have different needs. But these days, uh, I mentioned before, we do serve prototyping needs, production needs across a lot of different manufacturing methods, but it's grown up, it's professionalized. Uh, the quality of what we can offer, the consistency of what we can offer is in a very different place. And I will give myself a pat on the back and say that you know, I helped with that. And more importantly, I hired some people who were really instrumental in that as well. Uh, but we're just in many ways, a different company, but also our ethos and our culture is really the same. Uh, but yeah, we've you know, evolved a lot. And with Protolabs, we will continue to evolve. Uh, one of the biggest opportunities I see with Protolabs is they have some of the best customers in the world. Mm. So Protolabs customers, you've got every cool company that you would want to serve. And now as hubs, as the network offering, we're going, okay, what can I give you? Because we've got stuff. <laughs> uh, I want to come on to Protolabs in a, in a second, but um, since um, since you came to the company in 2019, I, I noticed when your appointment was made, appointment to CEO was um, announced last, um, last year that you were credited with overseeing the growth and the performance of uh, the manufacturing partner network. So can you explain how over over time you and your you know your colleagues, as you mentioned, have have worked to grow and improve that network of of partners. And I guess what what those improvements were as you were going along, what you what you're working to enhance um, for your customers. I think so before we talked about the supply and demand side, I think of it as sort of the capacity, the capabilities, and the quality of the network. So the capacity I'll set aside, you know, that's just having the right numbers so that you can always be reliable and truly be an always on uh, manufacturing option. The capabilities, you know, we need to make sure that we onboard suppliers that have the right capabilities. Again, machines, materials, quality standards. Uh, But I think the biggest change has been in how we manage quality much more proactively. So we work with the suppliers on their internal processes, you know, how they do QC, 
uh, how they even set up the machines at times. So we engage in a bit of process engineering. Uh, even before that is the way that we select our manufacturing partners. So we do have um, MPs that will come to us, but we also do outreach and go to them uh, to get, you know, especially if we're looking for like, I need to fill this one gap in the portfolio. Uh, that's more likely that we've gone to uh, a factory. But we onboard in a really rigorous way uh, where we are looking at you know, how they do things. We're inspecting the facility. We're meeting the team to make sure that it's going to be a good partnership. And the audit that we do is really quite thorough. Uh, when we onboard them, we engage in a lot of education about not only how to work with us effectively and how to serve our customers effectively, but, you know, education on the quality standards that we set. And so this is one of the big unlocks in a global network to be able to source a part anywhere and have it turn up the exact same, mm-hmm. you know, when there's different, you know, you're configuring your machine in a certain way. Uh, so we really do help shape that a lot so that a customer is going to get the same experience and it's going to be high quality each and every time. Uh, the relationship management that we do, the performance management that we do uh, has added to that quite a bit uh, as well. Uh, there's also been one really big logistical change that helped, well, two almost. Uh, for a lot of our orders, we cross-stock the order in our own facilities. So this is not true for all orders, but many things come through us first so that we, in addition to the QC that the manufacturing partner is doing, we do our own QC. And so we can generate that audit report on the part. It's allowed us to spot issues before they hit the customer, uh, remediate those issues quickly. And of course, with 3D printing, it's easy enough to get a remake done pretty Mm -hmm. fast. Um, but it's also helped us give more feedback to partners and you know really work with them on their trouble spots. Mm. Uh, we also managed to do some QC virtually uh, with suppliers where that order is going to be drop shipped directly to the customer. So I think the consistency, the quality, the maturity of those processes uh, has really allowed us to build, I think, the best network that's out there among the, uh, let's say, outsourced players. Today's episode is sponsored by 3D Systems. Here, Paul Miller, 3D Systems Materials Product Marketing Manager, introduces Duraform PAX, a new novel SLS nylon photopolymer that promises great mechanical properties for prototypes and end-use parts, long-term stability, and unexpected low cost of ownership. Duraform PAX is a new family of products that uh, we developed in partnership with uh, Adams Grill Tech. And what we're really excited about is its innovation in the space where there hasn't been a ton of types of materials. Duraform PAX is durable, it's tough, um, has really high elongation, and is really flexible. So it opens up a lot of application possibilities. It prints at a very low temperature, which is actually one of its strengths because it's easier on printers and has a really high recycling rate. What we're also really excited about is some of the operational benefits. It is faster to handle. Uh, you can remove it, the part cake, the machine faster after printing, and the breakout of parts. And, and that's where some of the financial benefits help our customers as well. When people hear new and novel, they, they typically jump to, it's gotta be expensive. Um, but, but our pricing strategy with Duraform PAX was intended to encourage adoption 
as a go-to material, particularly for those customers that are looking for prints with unspecified properties. So you, you still get all those great mechanical properties that we, we talked about, but at generally a lower cost. And then it's the operational benefits. It's the ease of printing. It's the operator intervention, the less service. You don't have any sublimation, which is one of the big challenges people experience with PA11s. Our customers have come to us and said they're really excited to be able to offer an SLS material uh, to their customers that, that they can ship within 24 hours, which is, is truly remarkable. This material is intended for end-use parts. You've got long-term stability and in some cases properties that make it indistinguishable from injection molded parts. Can you talk about that? Today we have two different variants and it's a family that we expect that will we'll grow in the future. We have a, a natural color and a black color. We've tested the color and the mechanical properties out over five years for indoor and outdoor over uh, a year and a half. And the tensile strength, the elongation and color all hold up from the look and the aesthetics of the material, particularly when you vapor hone it, you're able to get some translucency that opens up new applications. So anything where you're trying to look at liquids and anything within walls, you'll get that really nice translucency. It's, it's been described from our customers as looking like a, a rigid polypropylene. For the black material, uh, instead of the translucency, you get an additional sheen. So some of these sample applications that we've made is we've introduced texture onto the parts and then vapor honed it. By doing that, it really looks like an injection molded plastic. One of the examples I like to talk about is some of our engineers that work on all these different materials in, in our office and showing these uh, vapor honed SLS parts, people are shocked to believe that they're, they come from SLS. To learn more, head over to mytct.co forward slash 3dspod or visit 3dsystems.com. Obviously, the the Protolabs acquisition. Um, you were you were appointed CEO um, a few months after that acquisition um, went through. But can you explain, I guess, how the business combination of the two service providers, obviously with, with different business models, I a came about. But I guess b why it made sense for both of you um, to to merge and, and come together. The idea of coming together is to offer the customer a much broader manufacturing solution. So I think it's important to start with the context of Protolabs and uh, their specialty. So Protolabs, I say they, it's ours, but for the uh, purposes of hubs and Protolabs, sure. <laughs> forgive the us and them language, it's not really like that. Uh, but Protolabs is very specialized in being very fast in-house manufacturing that is extremely digitally enabled. So similar to hubs, they go from a CAD file, you know, file is uploaded, they do analysis on it, can quote the customer, and then that, fi that file and the requirements that the customer has entered are going to be translated in a very automated way to programming that's going to a machine. And so that thing, that part is going to get, you know, spit out with very little human intervention in the entire process, uh, which is really cool. It allows them to be really fast, you know, really reliable. But if you're Protolabs, to add new capabilities means you're buying new machines because it's in-house. Mm. So you're buying new machines, you're generating new code, new software. Whereas if you're in a distributed manufacturing setup to add new capabilities, there's a bit of software that we have to do for sure, but let's go find the right partners mm -hmm. and let's give it a try. So, you know, for us to add MJF, 
is a lot easier than for protolabs. Mm-hmm. Now, we both do MJF at this point. <laughs> uh, so on the distributed side, I'd say that relative to protolabs in-house digital manufacturing, um, we are broader for sure. Uh, we are slower and cheaper, you know, that comes with the slower, but also comes from just not owning the assets and uh, having multiple suppliers that can bid on things. So you put those two things together and I, as a customer, don't have to think about like, oh, well, who do I go to if I need something fast? Who do I go to if, oh, I need this one surface finish, but they don't have it. Mm. You don't want the customer to have to think about that. It should just be an automatic, you know, here's my part. Here's what I need. Can you do it? Oh, you can. And you can quote me this whole range of options. So the feedback from customers uh, at Protolabs, so before we were part of the company, uh, was, you know, I love you guys. I love what you do. It's just, I have needs that you don't meet. Mm. You know, the fact that I'm not spending more with you isn't because I chose someone else because I wanted to. I just couldn't choose you. So that was the rationale. And that's how we started talking. Uh, And now that we are coming together, that's the end goal. It's to be the one-stop shop. It's to be the no-brain solution. No-brain, no-brainer solution. (laughs) So uh, the customer at the front end, if say if they're bringing their parts to Protolabs, or, or hubs, do they do they know which brand? I guess even though you're you're kind of one at this point, takes care of that. You know what I mean? Whether it's the in-house capability or the outsourced capability, is, is the customer aware of that? Do they have a say in that, or do you guys just see see the parts and go, this is the best avenue for that part to meet this deadline? Today, uh, it's a fairly separate journey. So mm-hmm. we are building the integration so that customers can upload a part in one place and see the full suite of options. Uh, we've just gone live with the very first versions of this. Mm-hmm. So getting our first orders through uh, and we are building that on protolabs.com. So today there are customers you know, that say buy in both places, but they're doing so separately. We don't want them to have to do it separately. Yeah. So. Yeah. Now and in the future, if you go to protolabs.com, upload a part, uh, you will be able to see options that will be produced in-house or in the network, and we're going to make it transparent. Mm-hmm. So as a customer, you know, if it's really important to you that you know exactly where it's produced and you want it in that protolabs factory, you can absolutely choose that. Yep. If you are, let's say, less time sensitive or less location sensitive, then you know we've got options for you too. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the integration of of the of the companies, how what can you tell me about that over the last eighteen months? How much has I guess changed? Is it is it a case um, I gather with some acquisitions that happen in the industry? It's kind of like Protolabs acquires Hubs, but Hubs just keeps sticking along doing what it does because it works. Has there been any changes in in you know culture or, or best practice and that kind of thing, or has it just been normal service resumed? Well, I'd say we're on the journey right now. So in our first year, it was more, you know, the former example that you mentioned, where we continued to grow both brands independently, uh, definitely did some best practice sharing, but more than anything, it was a bit of, I think, focusing on the organic businesses and um, getting ready for the future. So in 2022, we've been taking far more steps to actively integrate. 
And a big part of this is actually just technical and software integration. Uh, of course, we have the teams working together uh, much more closely than in the past, and we'll continue to um, work more closely together in the future. But we're really building that software bridge that unlocks the entire offer in one place. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to touch on COVID-19 and the pandemic and all of the, the talk of supply chain that came with that in the in the 3D printing and, and additive manufacturing industry. Um, that those conversations are you know still ongoing even though we're you know I guess post pandemic you could say um depending it always on feels like you're jinxing it if you say you know we're in the post COVID times you're like ooh but are we <laughs> yeah I, it depends which country you're in some of us are ignoring it um so how would you assess I guess as a just a broad question on this topic how would you assess the suitability of 3D printing to provide uh, supply chain wins, and, and I guess where specifically do you see the big opportunities within supply chain for AM? I think, you know, COVID was a terrible time globally, but one of the small silver linings was this was really 3D printing's time to shine. So when global supply chains were massively disrupted, uh, you know, I worked in a role at the time where we're sourcing in China. Mm. And the whole country shut down. We're sourcing in India. Country shuts down. Uh, the fact that you had a fast manufacturing option that was close to customers made all the difference. And so there were a lot of things that, you know, your orders, you're just, they're stuck overseas. Nothing's moving. No one can operate. But thank God you've got some AM that's close to home. And the 3D printing you know, companies and service bureaus really stepped up uh, to fill the gap in PP in particular, but also to, you know, start prototyping on products that we didn't know we needed until COVID hit. So, you know, it really got us through some difficult times. And as hubs, you know, we were happy to be able to facilitate that. We did work on PPE initiatives um, and we did help nonprofits and you know medical organizations get their parts and get their equipment made uh, as quickly as they could. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this has opened more people's eyes to the role that AM can play. Uh, I think as we said earlier, there's still kind of an education gap where people don't always think AM first, mm -hmm. but now they know if I need a shorter production round and I need it fast, there's an option that's here and I can go for this. And so a lot more people are aware of that now than they were in the past, I think. Yeah. Hubs as a brand, you know, I guess talked about, you know, the idea of decentralized manufacturing, for example, for, for a long time. And, um, you know, your predecessor brand as well told TCT last year um, in a feature we did that you felt an online platform like, you know, hubs, for example, can accelerate the future of decentralized manufacturing. What are your Thoughts on, on that, I guess, decentralized manufacturing as an, as an idea and then as, a, as something that is actually put into practice, you know, at a, a widespread level. What, what are the, the steps that need to be made for that to become more common, I guess? Hmm. Well, I think decentralized manufacturing is the future. And, you know, the combination that we have now of in-house plus decentralized makes it stronger hmm. than anything else. Uh, but, you know, for a customer, so the reasons I think decentralized is so huge as a customer, I do want the convenience of buying in one place. Yeah. 
You know, it's a nightmare to have to vet a ton of different suppliers. It's not fun. I've been in that position before, but you want the breadth. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can only achieve the breadth through that decentralization. And it allows, I think, factories and service bureaus to focus on what they're really good at. You know, whether it's a specific niche of AM or whether it's just focusing on production and not spending your time acquiring customers and servicing customers. It's like, we can take that headache off of you. But there's also the geographic component. So, you know, with decentralized, you can optimize around the world, whether you're optimizing for, you know, a specific capability or a lead time or a price, but you also have the opportunity to manufacture close to home. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we are uh, enabling and want to see more of just for the purpose of emissions, if nothing else. It's, you know, there are some capabilities, I will say that you're not going to get outside of China. They're just so Mm -hmm. good. It's so good that we do source there and there's demand but if you can get it close to home, let's do that instead. Yeah. So for ethical reasons, I think it's also very important that we continue to push on decentralized. Mm. Um, but the steps to really make this happen, you know, it's solving the customer convenience play for sure. So that's where a platform like ours and the machine learning pricing and the instant quoting, you know, you need to take out that whole back and forth with a distributed network. But then I come back to something else I mentioned earlier, which is the standardization and quality. Because with decentralized, you know, if I'm not going to get the same part every time, then I care about which factory. I care. I want it in the same factory because I want the same part that I ordered last time. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to turn up looking a little bit more grayish than black. That's not helpful to me, uh, especially if these things are going to get assembled together. So if you can achieve the standardization, and you know the dynamic order routing and all the automation that you want, um, then it's a completely powerful and I think unbeatable option. Mm. You've you've, as I understand, you know, worked in, in supply chain before or as a supply chain analyst in in previous roles for, for other organisations. Um, we touched on you know opportunities for the three D printing in supply chain. What do you see as the like challenges or maybe the the misconceptions? relating to 3D printing and supply chain, I guess today with, with the caveat that maybe things get fixed and any bugs gets fixed, but what are the, what, what are the misconceptions that, that you see in here today? Well, there are a number of misconceptions and I don't blame anybody for it. It's a space that's evolving so rapidly that people's impressions are always lagging by a few years at least. Mm. So one thing that we find is that people, when they think of 3D printing, they might just be thinking of like desktop FDM from 10 years ago. Mm. So their expectation on the quality and the capabilities is just not representative of the range of options today. Uh, Like I mentioned previously as well, I think some people, engineers didn't grow up designing for 3D printing. And so they design a part for injection molding and then they just throw it over the fence and they're like, yeah, yeah, 3D print this. Mm -hmm. And not only is it maybe not optimized for that, but it might, the part could probably just be better Mm. if you had designed for it. So I think we will see a generation of engineers that come up knowing how to design for these technologies, but it doesn't help that they will continue to evolve so quickly. So, you know, we've got SLS and MJF on the rise. You know, these are shooting stars for us. DMLS could very well be the way of the future, but there's a lot of standardization and automation 
yet to come in that. So it's going to be a moving target uh, to keep people's expectations in line with what's available and keep people's training in line with what's available as well. Mm. What other trends, in addition to supply chain trends, or I guess emerging markets pertaining to AM and, and 3D printing technology, do, do you and, and does the rest of the hubs and, and the protolabs teams see as, I guess, potential opportunities moving forward, whether that be like an application area or, you know, something else entirely like, you know, sustainability is a big talking point and things like that. Yeah, I think sustainability is definitely a big opportunity because, you know, it's the producing closer to home, but in a highly automated way, Mm. because one of the things that makes local production so expensive is the high labor component. And so with 3D printing, if you can automate a lot of the production and the price of the machines, of course, comes down over time, the material, eh, it changes over time as well. We've had some resin issues lately, uh, especially during COVID. But you know, if you take that labor component out, then all of a sudden local manufacturing becomes so, so, so much more viable. Uh, you do see a lot more companies taking 3D printing in-house and using it for prototyping. So that's also a headwind for a business like mine, because if everybody just has it in-house, then what are they using me for? Uh, but they tend to not have the breadth in-house uh, that you would need. Uh, you also see for MRO, maintenance repair operations, uh, you know, you don't need to keep a bunch of parts in stock. You can actually produce them much more as needed. So we see some facilities popping up just near airports right now, mm-hmm. near distribution hubs, uh, where it's, you know, print off what you need and either use it there or just ship it out directly from the hub. Uh, so those are, you know, really interesting, I think high level supply chain changes. You know, it changes how you hold inventory in a very significant way. Uh, from the additive technologies out there. I said SLS and MJF are shooting stars for us. At DMLS, we see a lot of opportunity. You know, metal is going to be a big deal and it's going to continue to evolve. And that's where I think you'll start to see things fundamentally shift from, I did it with injection molding or die casting and just sat on a bunch of inventory I didn't need to actually let's do these smaller runs if and when I need them. So for us, it's important to keep an eye on these developments. Uh, you're always asking the question of, you know, should I get ahead of the customer demand or be just slightly behind it? Uh, but it's an evolving space. And it's also one where we experiment with it, not only through the network, but Protolabs buys cutting edge machines too. Mm. And, you know, we give it a try to see what we can do, see if the customers like it. Uh, so it's ripe for experimentation. Right, well, um, thank you, Cappy, for, for joining us today. Before I, I let you go, can you tell can you tell us what the I guess the future holds for for hubs, taking into account you know the significant growth it's had over the last ten years or so, and obviously the the Protolabs acquisition. What does the the future look like for for the company? Well, the future is the one stop shop of in house and distributed manufacturing. Uh, but we aim to be the best distributed network out there. And that means you know, the smartest, the most automated, but the most human where we need to be. Uh, and just continuously trading off between location capability, but always getting the customer the thing that they need at you know, exactly the price point and the lead time uh, that they want. And 
you know, it's a ton's going to happen in the next couple of years. It helps that, you know, we're in a very dynamic industry. So there's always new opportunities uh, coming up. But I think what we're going to have and what we're going to be bringing to the market is very powerful.